When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about climate politics at the California Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco next week. All the world's major nations will be represented, except for our own government. Mark Hertzgard will report on how California, under Governor Jerry Brown, is not only hosting the Climate Action Summit, but California has taken the lead in fighting climate change. He'll talk about how climate activists have organized at the upcoming summit to demand that the governor end new oil and gas drilling. Also, now that the confirmation hearings have begun for Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's Supreme Court nominee, we asked the nation's legal affairs correspondent, David Cole, what questions the Democrats should be asking him. David is also legal director of the ACLU. First up, unions are fighting for their lives in the upcoming midterm elections. For that, we turn to Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, with 1.7 million members and more than 3,000 local affiliates nationwide. Randy Weingarten, welcome to the program. It is great to be with you, and uh, this is a season of renewal, but it's also the season this year of great resistance and great resilience. Let's not start in Washington, D.C. I'd like to start in Oklahoma, not exactly a liberal bastion. Between 2008 and 2015, Oklahoma's Republicans slashed the state's per-student education spending by 24% more than any other state in the country. What did that do to Oklahoma's public schools, and what did Oklahoma teachers do about it? I want to put this in the context of Oklahoma, West Virginia, and Arizona, because what you have is those states and others which, after the Great Recession, right-wing, ideological, Republican leadership made a decision that public education didn't really matter. And they also made a decision that public services, like crumbling bridges and other types of things, also didn't matter. And over the course of the last 10 years, from 08 to 18, they basically kept cutting schools, even when the economy was coming back, and opting instead for things like tax breaks for the oil and gas industry. Um, in Oklahoma in particular. And what has ha- what happened was you had four-day school weeks. You had a freeze of salary in Oklahoma for teachers. You had teachers that are basically on food stamps. You had kids who were using 50-year-old textbooks. And in West Virginia initially, then Oklahoma, then Arizona, other places, they finally said enough was enough. And I think there was a sense because of the activism that had happened in the Women's March and in in other places that they could rise up. 
and you had a human shield for students and for education and for the dignity of education workers like teachers and the public who supported it. And that's what happened in Oklahoma this year. And frankly, that wasn't the end of the story. The second act of that story just happened last week, which is in the Republican primary for state office. Twelve of the people who voted against a tax increase so that schools could be better funded, so that teachers didn't have a freeze of salary, twelve of the people who voted against that were defeated in a Republican primary. And in fact, of the 19 Republican legislators who disparaged teachers, who voted against it, who wanted the status quo, 15 of those 19 are not returning. Are seeing, hopefully, a real transformation in the country about what's important to working folks, which is making sure that they have living wages, a pathway to the middle class, having decent health care so that no one is one illness away from bankruptcy, having decent schools so that their kids have a, sh- a shot in life, and having a voice in our democracy as well as a voice at work. And that's what we're arguing for um, in this 2018 election season. So at the same time that we see an escalating Republican war on public schools and on unions, especially through the courts attacking unions, the Gallup and Pew polls are showing the highest level of public support for unions in decades, around 62%, which is the highest, highest in 15 years. What do you make of that? And, seven, and the PDK poll, you know, when people were asked, do you want to strengthen public schools or do you want to have alternatives? There you saw 78%, almost 80% supporting strengthening public schools and supporting school teachers, even if they go on strike. Amazing. So you're seeing a resurgence. I I think what's happening, John, is that it really is a which side are you on moment. And the right, they just think about how they're going to crush others and how they're going to crush the institutions for opportunity. And what they basically want is they want everybody to fend for themselves. So if you are a gazillionaire, you can fend for yourself. But if you're not then you need to have public education. Then you need to have a health care system where health care is available so that you're not one pre-existing condition away from bankruptcy. What you see in terms of the union numbers is millennials in particular, who when you look at their numbers, it's over 70, almost 80%, which say we need unions. They get that being united together in a fight that creates power to get something done. That when you don't have a silver spoon, when you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth, when you're not the 1% of this country, you need to work with others to make possible what is impossible working alone. That is what, that's the definition of collective bargaining. Okay, now let's talk about the Supreme Court. The Janus decision is something we've talked about on this show a lot. Just to remind our listeners, in June, the court ruled five to four that government workers who choose not to join unions 
may not be required to help pay for collective bargaining. The New York Times reported that, quote, teachers' unions could lose up to a third of their members and their funding as a result of the Supreme Court decision. Our question for you is how how is the AFT going to retain union members and get their free riders to want to pay dues? As Justice Kagan in her scathing dissent said in Janus, at the end of the day, this was a political decision by five members of the court who hate unions. And what's happened is that people throughout the country are saying, we're sticking with the union. We want the representation of unions. We know that we are stronger with unions. And overwhelmingly, our members are sticking with the union. Now, we've prepared for this, meaning we've changed the way in which we address our issues. It's more important than ever that our members are engaged. And I think that one of the silver linings of the Janus case, again, I would not want this case ever. And I think it was wrongly decided. And if we had to do it over again, I would have hoped that it would have been decided differently. But the silver lining here is that locals throughout the country are going back to their roots and going back to talking to people. And what's happened as a result is that people feel empowered and they're not outsourcing their power to their leaders and they're saying to their leaders, you do everything. What's happening is that member engagement is higher than it's ever been. In our union, we polled our members um, before the decision. And by a vote of 74% to 4%, I've never seen numbers like that, people had a favorable opinion of the AFT. And you're seeing that in the recommit numbers, and you're seeing that in, in the people that are, are, are basically saying, no, we're sticking with the union, and we get value from it, and we're not, we're not opting for the services without paying for it. One last thing. Trump's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has proposed that states use federal funds to purchase guns for school. I wonder what you think about that. It's insane. I mean, there's two things that are really terrible about her proposal. Separate and apart from what you think about her, and it just it it just seemed from the proposal that the that that she was lobbying for the gun manufacturers or for the NRA, not for children. But separate from my personal belief about that, let's look at the merits of this proposal. She would take money that goes to kids who are disadvantaged. Money that goes for guidance counselors, for nurses, for mental health services. Something that, regardless of where you are on the gun debate, you think that those things are pretty important for kids. She takes that pot of money and uses it for guns in schools. That is um, horrible in the first place. But secondly, why would you want to put more guns in schools? We know from the evidence that, the, that, that if you have more guns in schools, you have a chance to have more terrible situations, accidental discharges of guns. The, the, the people who actually know what they're doing with guns, I do not. I have never used one. I hope I will never use one. But, but, but my friends are advisors who are members, who are marksmen, who are members of the NRA. They'll tell you that, that, that it is insanity to have someone who is not a trained professional having 
the use of a gun in the middle of these kind of emergencies. What are you going to do? You're going to, the kids are running all over the place in, in trying to get out. You'd have a teacher with a gun trying to figure out who the shooter is against someone who has an assault weapon who can discharge 50 bullets a minute. So for all these reasons, it is a really insane idea. And what it would do is it would actually increase anxiety, make schools less safe. And that's why I, I couldn't imagine that there was anyone who was, who was suggesting this idea other than the gun manufacturer industry who wants to sell more guns. We're sticking with the unions. Randy Weingarten is president of the American Federation of Teachers, representing 1.7 million members. Thank you, Randy. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, John. California has led the nation in fighting Trump on climate change. Jerry Brown, who's governor of what is something like the world's fifth or sixth largest economy, has won major reductions in carbon emissions. But activists say he's failed to take the next step, leaving fossil fuels in the ground. For that story, we turn to Mark Hertzgard. He's the nation's investigative editor-at-large and the author of seven books that have been translated into 16 languages. The most recent one is Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Mark Hertzgard, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, next week is the California Global Climate Action Summit, September 12th to 14th in San Francisco. What exactly is it? It's not a formal United Nations summit, but it is very definitely part of the process uh, that resulted out of the landmark summit in 2015 in Paris, the UN summit that gave us the Paris Agreement that essentially committed the world's governments to keep uh, temperature rise well below 2 degrees centigrade, which is seen as the scientifically sort of the the line between merely dangerous climate change and extremely dangerous climate change. And so this summit is uh, sort of a halfway mark between the 2015 summit and the 2020 summit, uh, where governments will have to announce their actual plans for reaching that goal. And California was chosen for this role because California has such a strong climate uh, record to date. And so the focus at the summit is going to be on very concrete actions, not uh, flowery statements, but sort of sharing best practices, and and not just uh, national governments, but state and local governments around the world saying, this is how you too can reduce your emissions and do it at the same time that you're delivering um, economic prosperity, as California has done. So I understand that the government delegations that are going to be there include China, India, Germany, France, the European Union, Brazil. There's one missing, isn't there? <laughs> you notice that. Yes, there, the uh, United States of Donald Trump is very conspicuously absent. Uh, and you say this is being uh, hosted in California by Governor Jerry Brown because California has taken the lead in reducing carbon emissions. What has California done and what is California doing right now to reduce carbon emissions? 
California has probably the strongest record of climate action of any major economy in the world. And it has already reduced its uh, emissions to 1990 levels. In other words, the California economy is now, redu- is now uh, producing as many greenhouse gas emissions as it did in 1990. That despite the fact that the economy is probably two or three times larger now and the population is considerably larger. And so that is the first step towards climate stabilization. And Governor Brown, in the year 2015, signed an executive order requiring California to go further, to reduce emissions to 40 percent below 1990 levels, and to do that by the year 2030. That's what California has done. There's another major step in the works, a law mandating a shift to 100 percent renewable electricity by 2045, that's passed the state legislature in California. And as of today, which is Tuesday when we're taping this, it's waiting for Governor Jerry Brown to decide whether to sign it and make it the law of the state 100% clean electricity for the fifth or sixth largest economy of the world. That sounds huge. Will Jerry Brown sign it? And what can you tell us about the politics around this? That would be a major, major uh, step. It would be 100% clean electricity by the year 2045. Now, bear in mind, this is clean electricity, which is not the same thing as clean energy. Electricity is, though, almost half of the total amount of energy used in the United States. So this would be a very, very big deal. It was a very tough fight getting it through the California legislature. They finally passed it at the end of the session. And... Uh, Governor Brown has not yet signaled whether he's going to sign it. He has until the end of September to decide one way or the other. I would have to say it is hard to imagine that a governor with Jerry Brown's record of achievement on climate change and his clearly demonstrated understanding of just how dangerous climate change is, not only to the state of California, but to uh, our civilization as a whole, it's hard to imagine that Jerry Brown won't sign this. That said, uh, he did not come out in favor of this bill, SB 100, during the wrangling in the legislature. And there were rumors, uh, more than rumors, that he had hinted in a Wall Street Journal piece that uh, in order to sign this bill, he also wanted uh, the legislature to agree to a separate bill, which had to do with the regionalization of the electricity grid in California. And that was a controversial bill. Many environmentalists uh, opposed that. Other environmentalists uh, supported it. But the long and short of it is that uh, that did not pass, that separate bill. So now Brown faces simply an up or down choice on whether he's going to sign this bill that says 100% clean electricity by 2045. It's really hard to imagine that he won't sign it, but we'll have to wait and see. So we've talked about what California has accomplished under Jerry Brown. Now we get to the hard part, what California is failing to do. Many of our friends have organized a group fighting what they call Brown's Last Chance. This is a campaign that will climax at the California Climate Action Summit in San Francisco next week. Tell us about Brown's Last Chance. Brown's last chance, that's a reference to the fact that uh, Governor Brown is termed out and he will leave office in December, having served four terms as California governor. 
And the activists are saying, uh, as Bill McKibben uh, points out in the special issue of the Nation magazine that we're publishing to coincide with the summit, McKibben points out that Governor Brown has been a terrific first-generation climate leader. He's reduced these emissions that we've already talked about. But, McKibben goes on to say, in the next and and the the new and the next phase of the climate fight, Jerry Jerry Brown is flunking because going forward, it's not enough to reduce emissions. We also have to keep the fossil fuels in the ground. That's based on uh, very firm science that says that if we are going to limit global temperature rise to under two degrees C, as the Paris Accord requires, we've got to leave most of the world's remaining fossil fuels in the ground, especially the coal, but also the oil. So the activists are asking Governor Brown to, first of all, halt all new oil production in California and halt all fracking in California. Mind you, that's new oil production. That means new oil wells. Uh, They're not calling for uh, California to halt all oil production immediately. Now, I know you talked to Jerry Brown for the special issue of The Nation magazine on uh, climate change politics, and you asked him specifically about this. What did he say? (laughs) He was not happy to hear that question. We were talking uh, inside the governor's office at the state capitol there, and he was seated on a couch uh, in the office. And when I asked him about this critique by the activist, he nearly leaped off the couch. Uh, he got so agitated, and uh, he started denouncing these activists for what he clearly saw as their naive demagoguery. And he said, you know, basically this this idea of halting all uh, oil production in California, what would happen if I had the dictatorial powers to do that as governor? And all the gasoline stations in, in, in all of California stopped pumping gasoline. What would happen? The governor asked rhetorically. And he said, would there be shootings? Would there be killings? He said, there'd be mass chaos. The public reaction would stop anything like that before you got anywhere close to it. But but wait a minute. Does the climate change movement want California to eliminate all gas stations next week? Is that the demand? That is not the demand, which I uh, tried to point out to the governor, that he was uh, giving a caricature, really, of what they're asking. The activists are calling for a a definite uh, strong reduction, but a gradual and phased and planned reduction over a period of 10 years and more to reduce production of oil in California, in line, by the way, in line with the reduced demand for oil that the governor's own climate plan calls for. So uh, it's not as wild as, as the governor made it seem. And I'm not, frankly, sure why he uh, persisted in that. I asked his spokesperson later about that, and the spokesperson pointed out, as Governor Brown did too, that California's oil production has already declined. It's gone down almost by half in the last 30 years. But that's not what the activists are saying. The activists are pointing out, look, uh, Governor Brown, during your tenure, during your last eight years as governor, The state has authorized roughly 20,000 new oil wells. And they say when you do that, that all but locks in increased oil production for years to come. And that's what we need to have stopped. And further, the activists say that, that Jerry Brown is not doing this because he's too close to the oil companies. Jerry Brown is too close to the oil companies. What exactly does that mean? 
the activists uh, point out that Jerry Brown has received a lot of uh, donations over the years from oil companies, uh, millions. And the numbers vary depending on how you count it, if it's to Brown's own campaigns or to the state Democratic Party. But they also dug up a quote that Brown issued, gosh, 20 years ago now, when he used to host a radio show on uh, Pacifica Network. And he talked about how the campaign finance laws in America were an absolute travesty, and they were the reason that the country was in trouble. And he pointed out in his own case, someone asked, well, what about the contributions you got when you were running for president and running for governor of California? And Brown responded, look, uh, you bet I was influenced by those contributions. You think you can take $10 million, $20 million from somebody and have it not influence your judgment? So the activists are now throwing that quote back into the governor's face. And when I asked uh, his uh, press secretary about it, uh, the press secretary simply said, look, the governor has taken contributions from many groups, businesses, labor unions, individuals, and his focus is on doing what's right for California. Well, Jerry Brown and his defenders uh, argue that he is leading the fight against Trump on climate change. Trump, of course, wants more fossil fuel extraction, more offshore oil wells, more coal mines. They say it's unfair that Brown not only has to fight Trump on his right, but the climate change activists on his left. What do you say? I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, uh, but I think it's, uh, I put it in a little bit larger context. As I say in my piece in The Nation, the real tragedy here is that both sides might be right about this. That is to say that, yes, we need to keep the, the oil in the ground, but yes, it's very, very hard at this stage of the climate crisis to do as much as we need to do. Because we waited so long to act, we waited 30 years to start taking action, and now the amount that we have to cut emissions, we have to cut them so far and so fast that it is very tough to make that work in the uh, modern political system. You know, Jerry Brown has done more than any other governor on this, and activists want him to do more. They start with the, the fact of, of science, which is fair enough, but Brown answers back, well, there are facts and truths of politics and economics as well. And, you know, I'm going to fight the oil industry. I've fought them over and over again, but I can't beat them every time. And that's where I do think the activists are being a little unfair to Brown. You can't say that this guy is, is Big Oil's favorite politician when the thrust of his uh, climate policies for the last eight years has been to go at the core of the oil businesses, uh, oil industry's uh, business model. You know, Jerry Brown is pushing for dramatic and is achieving dramatic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. If you think that the uh, oil industry is happy with him about that, I'd like some of what you're smoking. Mark Hertzgaard, he wrote the cover story for the nation's special issue on climate change. His piece is about Jerry Brown and the climate wreckers, and it asks, is he doing enough? You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee to fill the Supreme Court seat vacated by the swing vote, Anthony Kennedy. Today's topic, what should Democrats on the Judiciary Committee ask Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings? For that, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and Legal Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. 
His most recent book is Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's clarify at the outset, what is the ACLU policy on endorsement of Supreme Court nominees? So we are a we are a nonpartisan organization, as you know, and we have a policy of not endorsing or opposing um, nominees or uh, candidates for government office, uh, and that includes the Supreme Court. So we're neutral uh, on the on the uh, appointment of Justice Kavanaugh. So we're going to talk to you about the the confirmation hearings when people nominated for seats on the Supreme Court appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee, they almost always say that they cannot answer questions about current legal issues that might come before the court, which are, of course, all the issues that we care about. What exactly is the typical argument they make to justify not answering? Well, they generally say, uh, I, you want a judge with an open mind. Uh, I want, uh, I, you know, when this case comes before me, uh, I want to have an open mind. If I commit myself now to a position, then that will preclude me from having an open mind when the case comes before me. And I ought not decide how the case should come out until I've actually had briefing from both sides and considered it carefully uh, rather than in response to a question from a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And you think there are questions that Brett Kavanaugh must answer. Um, Before we get into the specifics of those questions, what is your rationale here? How do you distinguish between a a question that that really ought to be answered and questions that are not appropriate? So I think, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to ask uh, how you're going to rule in a particular case. And I I think it's, it's, it's a reasonable for the for a, a, a potential justice to to not answer that kind of a question for the reasons I articulated, but you know these are these are people uh, and Brett Kavanaugh is one in generally who have uh, spoken publicly on a wide variety of issues about their views um, and uh, have uh, not been you know not limited themselves to um, the 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 words in their written opinions and so I think you can ask them questions that go to their um, understandings of basic constitutional uh, principles and uh, and, and rights uh, without asking them to decide how they would rule in a specific case. So, for example, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to say, will you affirm or overturn Roe versus Wade? But I think you can ask, uh, do you agree that the Constitution protects a fundamental uh, right of liberty of all persons to make personal decisions about their bodies and their families? Uh, And that, you know, that includes things like the right to uh, choose how your child is educated, the right to choose whether to use contraception or not, the right to uh, to marry on equal terms if you're straight or 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 not, uh, and the the right to abortion. And in fact, uh, Roe v. Wade right now has massive public support. There's a new poll from NBC News and the Wall Street Journal. It's found that 71 percent of American voters believe that the decision which established a woman's legal right to an abortion should not be overturned. Just 23% say the ruling should be reversed. That's the highest level of support for Roe v. Wade and the lowest share of voters 
who wanted overturned in the in the history of of polling. So this is for the Democrats uh, and the opponents of Kavanaugh a key political issue that they will mobilize opposition to him around and. So, and you think there is a way to ask him about this? There can't we also ask him about uh, his his recent rulings about one abortion case involving a person in immigration detention? Tell us about that one. No, oh, absolutely. So, yeah, and you know, I, I think on on the uh, on this the the remarkable uh, support for Roe, I think what you're seeing there is the Trump effect. Uh, he he has threatened to take it away, and because he's threatened to take away something that has been so central to uh, so many people's lives, people have come forward and you know and are are newly valuing it uh, in ways that I think they may have just sort of taken for granted for a long time. Um, so Brett Kavanaugh on on Roe versus Wade, I think you know we we he hasn't decided. Uh, many cases, but he did decide one case, a case that we brought, uh, the ACLU, on behalf of an, un, uh, of an undocumented minor who was in federal custody in Texas, uh, learned that she was pregnant, um, uh, sought to obtain an abortion, went through all the steps you need to go through as a minor in Texas to get an abortion, and then the, the uh, head of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which oversees the um, federal custody of of immigrant minors, uh, and is a uh, adamantly um, pro life guy, uh, vetoed her decision and said, "No, I'm not going to facilitate you getting an abortion." Uh, and what he meant by that is, I'm not going to open the door of the facility in which you are being held in custody to allow you to go out for medical treatment that is your constitutional right. And we sued. Uh, and the courts, the, the district court ruled that indeed she had a right to uh, have that abortion, and the government has no right to keep her locked up to deny her medical treatment. Um, and the government appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and Judge Kavanaugh was on the panel that heard that appeal, uh, and he uh, ruled that um, the government could have an, an extra, at that point, uh, I think 11 days to try to find a sponsor for the girl so that she could be taken out of federal custody, at which point they wouldn't have anything to do with the uh, abortion. Um, and that was then overturned over the weekend by the D.C. Circuit, um, uh, the full panel of the D.C. Circuit. So, you know, in that case, he did not, he, he voted against the uh, the right of the woman. He did, you know, he didn't say she could not have an abortion at all. He said that the government should be given uh, some more time before she uh, gets her abortion, but she'd already been uh, delayed for about a month in terms of getting the abortion. And the longer you go, the more uh, risky it is, and at some point it becomes illegal to have an abortion. Well, for Democrats organizing the opposition to Kavanaugh, his position on abortion rights and Roe v. Wade is the number one question, but it's not the number quest- number one question on your list of questions the Democrats should ask Kavanaugh. What's your number one? So my number one is really is, is whether he is someone who... Um, believes in an evolving constitution or whether he is somebody who is committed to uh, a consti- the constitution as it was understood by the you know the the dead white men who wrote it uh, 200 plus years ago uh, and if you look at the history of supreme court justices in this country 
virtually all of them have believed in an evolving constitution. That is, we start with the constitution as it was written 200 plus years ago, but we recognize that the country has changed over time, and we recognize that the constitution was written in broad terms precisely so that it could uh, evolve with the times. And it's through judicial interpretation and specifically by the Supreme Court, that that happens. But there are a handful of justices who take a very different view, this this originalist view that we are stuck with whatever the folks back then, 200 plus years ago, thought. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a very small minority of justices over the course of history who've taken that view, but unfortunately there are a number of them on the court today. Um, uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch are both originalists. Uh, Justice Alito is sometimes an originalist, um, and that's disturbing because, you know, if you take an originalist understanding of the Constitution, if you believe it doesn't evolve at the times, then segregation uh, would be legal because it was legal at the time that the 14th Amendment was adopted, and there was very little evidence that the uh, the, the framers of the 14th Amendment intended to um, to undo segregation. Women's protection under the Equal Protection Clause, they were not um, uh, Laws that treated women differently from men were not seen as violating the Equal Protection Clause until the 1970s, when uh, because of feminism, because of the women's movement, because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the ACLU, the court finally came around to recognizing the Equal Protection Clause uh, protects women. Marriage equality, obviously, was not protected by the Constitution until 2015. So if you believe in an originalist understanding of the Constitution, then you throw a lot of rights that we... Uh, today consider very fundamental to who we are as Americans under the bus. The next big issue for Kavanaugh, in my opinion, concerns the possibility that the court might be asked to review charges or proceedings of some kind against Donald Trump. We remember the case of United States versus Nixon, the landmark Supreme Court case from 1974, a unanimous decision against President Nixon ordering him to deliver tape recordings, and other subpoenaed materials to a federal district court. In the past, Kavanaugh has suggested that the court came to the wrong conclusion in United States versus Nixon. What do you think Democrats could ask him about U.S. versus Nixon and about the possibility that United States versus Trump might come before the court? Well, I think there's, there are lots they can and should ask him on that question because, you know, it's absolutely a, 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 real, a real possibility that one of these matters will come uh, before the court and that he might well be the decisive vote. Um, and I think the first one is, you know, he's been given the, this plum assignment by President Donald Trump. Is he, will he recuse himself uh, if Donald Trump himself is... Uh, 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 is that is that issue? Uh, the second, I think, is to 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 ask him to, to ask about this this case, the U.S. versus Nixon case, and what is his justification for saying that a, a decision that was unanimously handed down by a court that had many conservative Republicans on it, uh, as well as liberal uh, liberals and Democrats on it, um, you know what what was wrong about it, and what is the role, what is the proper role of the court in uh, checks and balances and assuring that the executive branch of the government does not run amok. Uh, and he has written uh, some pieces that uh, suggest, and these are his views, so I think he can be asked about it, suggest that in his view, 
uh, both civil and criminal uh, cases should not proceed against the president at all uh, while he is president because they are too distracting. Well, you know, we have a criminal investigation against the president right now. There are a number of civil cases uh, going on against the president. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there certainly are considerations that the president needs to be able to focus on his job, but there's also consider the number one consideration is that no one is above the law. And uh, if you if you take the courts out of checking executive power, uh, that's a that's a very, very dangerous uh, scenario, particularly when you've got a president like this in office. We've only got a couple of minutes left here. If uh, Kavanaugh refuses to answer these uh, questions, what choices do the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee have? Well, I think they, I think they really, you know, I think they need to essentially cross-examine him and really, you know, put him on the spot and and and, and require him to give meaningful answers. Um, if he doesn't give meaningful answers, then, you know, it's their, their choice as to whether they think they have sufficient information to, uh, to vote to confirm him or to vote to oppose him. And they, they, all, all they have are their votes. Um, uh, they can vote yay or nay. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, there are, um, you know, it's, it's essentially a 50 to 49 Senate right now. So if all the Republicans vote in his favor and all the Democrats vote against him, he will be confirmed, and uh, so there, there's not a lot that a, that a Democrat can do uh, unless a Republican uh, changes, you know, is willing to oppose the uh, the nominee. David Cole wrote about ten questions Brett Kavanaugh must answer for the New York Review Daily. He's national legal director of the ACLU and legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. Thank you, David. It's been great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.